Uh, it reminded me, as we were thinking about, I was thinking about tables this week and knowing that they were up, it reminded me of a story in my life um, where uh, I was this many, many years ago, probably 12 years ago, and I was in student ministries, and uh, we were actually at a winter retreat uh, in Colorado, and uh, so we were up in the mountains and we were at, the, at this retreat, and, and I sat, got up one morning, and I came to breakfast um, with a bunch of our students, and, and I noticed out of the corner of my eye, there's this freshman girl who appeared to be doing the same thing that I was doing, and so as I thought about this, I thought, hmm, uh, there's, this, there's this card game at the time called 99, and I think it still exists, but uh, I don't know who plays it, um, but it's this idea that if you break 99, if you're the person, like as you're playing cards, if you're the one to break 99, then you're the, the loser of that, and so I think you can kind of just eliminate people as you go or, or whatnot, but um, the, the kids like to do it a little bit differently, so they kind of added punishments to it, uh, and so one of them, I think, was, you know, like to, to follow Seth and do everything that he does. Um, and so I noticed this out of the corner of my eye. I see her kind of doing this. I thought, huh, I wonder if she lost 99. And so <laughs> I started, you know, just exaggerating my movements just to find out, you know. So I'd go down and up quick with my food and down and around. And sure enough, she's trying to do the best thing she can to parrot me. And so I instinctively, I was like, I wonder how, I wonder how committed she is to this, <laughs> you know. So, because, gosh, we could have a lot of fun, couldn't we? Um, so, um, I, I got up from the table, and sure enough, she did. I grabbed my fork, which she did as well, and she looked at me like, what are you doing? Please don't. <laughs> and so, I, I knew this girl very well, and I thought, you know what? Let's just go right here. So, I just came to the table right next to me. This guy's in the middle of eating his burrito. And I said, excuse me, are you done with this? And I cut a bite out of his burrito, and I pulled it up to my mouth, and the look that he gave me was, I mean, just priceless. What are you doing? I was like, wait for it. I do this, and he's like looking at me like, this is crazy. And, and then I was like, wait for it, wait for it. Here comes this freshman girl. Excuse me, are you done with that? <laughs> it was, oh, so, I was like, oh, man, this is so awesome. I should have stopped right there, and I didn't. Um, <laughs> We, we literally went from table to table. I think we touched about and got about 10, 10 tables um, before we kind of gave up. And uh, the next morning, um, I, my throat was on fire. And I thought, oh, I must have caught something. And then I saw the girl, and she goes, I don't feel good. <laughs> I was like, it's on me. We, 100%, we ate off of a sick person's plate, you know? Uh, so, because nobody else is sick, just us. So it's painful, right? Here's why I tell that story. Um, never at any point in that moment, again, remember this is 12 years ago, I was far less mature. So, um, never at any point in that conversation or in that thing, as, as people are communicating with me, verbally and non verbally communicating, what are you doing? Did I stop and consider, is this right? <laughs> um, or is this even appropriate? Because it wasn't really either, you know? Um, and despite the amount of communication, people kept doing that, and we reaped the consequences of that. We just did not think about what we were doing and if it was even good. And I, and I tell that story because here's why. Because I think that especially on Communion Sundays, Communion Sundays is a very special, important time because it allows us to reflect internally about where's my heart, right? And in fact, 
every Sunday should be that, and in fact, every single morning should be that. As we wake up, we remind ourselves of the gospel over and over and over and over again. We need to remind ourselves of who Jesus was, what he accomplished for us, and what he's called us to, right? That's so incredibly important every single day, uh, and communion Sundays especially. Um, and we need to ask ourselves this question, like, like, where is our heart in this? And so as I think about Jeremiah, Jeremiah gets this, this really bad rep at times uh, because you're like, you know, gosh, why are we still in Jeremiah? It's the same message over and over and over and over. It's wrath and judgment and doom and sin and consequences and all this stuff. Yeah, uh, that's, that's true. But here's what I don't want you to miss. Don't miss the beauty uh, of Jeremiah because the beauty of Jeremiah, at least so far, we're moving up to these passages that will really set us up on Easter about the new covenant and the blood of Jesus and all the stuff that God's doing, right? But what's happening so far, the beauty of the story is that God has been communicating over and over and over and over and over and over again. He never gives up. He never stops talking to his people. And he never stops calling them back into right relationship with himself. Now, the onus is on them because they choose not to listen. And so despite the amount of communication that's happening, we have the option to choose whether we listen or whether we don't. Uh, and, and in their case, part, part of the problem is the lies that these people in Jerusalem are believing. I wanna, we're going to be mostly in chapter 15, but I want you to take, with, take a look with me at chapter 14 uh, in verse 13. because This kind of sets up the context. This is the lies that we believe, if you're following any of your notes, okay? Verse 13, it says, then I said, ah, Lord God, okay, behold, the prophets say to them, when he says them, he's talking about to the people in Jerusalem, the prophets say to the people of Jerusalem, you shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. You see, this is what all of the prophets are saying to, Jer- or saying to the people, uh, and Jeremiah is saying the opposite. So one person versus all the other prophets, right? And what they're saying is that everything's fine. In fact, things are good. That's a totally different message not, than other than just like things are fine, right? Things are good. You will have peace. You will continue to have peace in this place. And Jeremiah is the lone wolf here saying, no, everything's not okay, right? And as I think, okay, so as we think about today, right, because we just, just setting the context here, we live, and, and I want to say this kind of carefully, but we live in a world of lies. We do. We live in a world of lies. Some of that is very intentional. Like, you know, kind of almost like this espionage type of act. There's this intentional lie making um, at times that is intentionally designed to take us away from and to lead us away from the truth. Right? Intentional, very intentional. Um, Other times, the lies that are being told uh, are more um, unconscious or unintentional, maybe even subliminal. These ideas, we don't even know that we're doing it, maybe, Um, but it can actually be, maybe it takes the form of even gossip. Because at some point, you start talking about something, and before you know it, kind of things are kind of coming out of the woodwork, and like he said, she said, he said, like she said, and all of a sudden, we end up believing something. We think of something as true, and then the reality is that that's not at all what's accurate. That's not what's true. And here's what I want us to know in this morning, like, is we think about the lies that we believe, because we don't have time to unpack all of that statement, but I want you to know this, is that lies, no matter how good a lie is, it can never change reality. 
Like, a lie can be 99.9% good, right? right? The greatest lie is, is, is just having this tiny little bit of falseness in it, right? But it cannot change reality, right? A lie can never change what's actually true. I can believe I have hair or want to have hair or tell people I have hair as much as I want, and the reality is, is that that will never change, right? Not even Bosley can restore my hair, okay? So there's that deal, right? So there's this idea that they can't change reality, but here is what's true about a lie. A lie can change my perception of reality. It can change my perception of reality. And here's why, that's, that's, here's why this is damaging. It's difficult. It's difficult because all of a sudden we find ourselves woven into this narrative, this narrative that we believe and think is true and it's going to take us to some dangerous places, ultimately maybe even to the judgment of God. And that's hard it's painful. And so when we look at these prophets, we think about these prophets in the Old Testament, we go, like, gosh, like Jeremiah, courage, great to you. You know, kudos to you for the, being the one who stood up to every other prophet. And we can, like, throw these other prophets, like, under the bus, right? And they're like the Pharisees. We're like, oh, they're terrible. When in reality is that when you look at these prophets, these guys, if not all these guys, at some point were devoted, dedicated people to the Lord, And so I want you to see the danger is how quickly and easily we can find ourselves in a false narrative without even knowing it. Everything's fine. Everything's good. In fact, everything's great, right? That's the reality, and that can ultimately lead us to a place of judgment. And so here's what God says to Jeremiah about these prophets in verse 14. He says, and the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them to speak or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Okay, here's the context, right? This is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. And it's a painful place to be if you're Jeremiah. These are the lies that are being told, right? And what God ultimately says is that these people, these prophets who are prophesying lies, the very thing that they are ignoring, that they choose to see as true, is the very thing that will consume them. It's the very thing that will consume them. Right? And so this is, this is the context, right? And so here we have, we have these three, these three woes. And so what's going to happen here as we move into chapter 15, we're going we're gonna to ask this question, um, how do people in, in, in our text deal with this message of judgment, right? Because there's lies that people are believing and that those lies ultimately have consequences. And so how do these different groups of people respond to this judgment that is coming from the Lord? And this first woe is really from God. And so I want you to hear, and as I read this uh, in chapter 15, uh, verse, um, verse 5, here's what I want you to do. Don't, don't get in your mind this picture that God is this vindictive, wrathful, angry God, okay? While there is wrath, and while there is justice, and while there is judgment, I want you to see this with a different lens, because otherwise our reality is changing, right? Our perception of reality is skewed if we see God as this wrathful, angry person here. What, what we see is a broken God who hurts for his people. So hear this, verse five. It says, who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Or who will grieve for you? Who will turn aside to ask about your welfare? 
You have rejected me, declares the Lord. You kept going backward. So I have stretched out my hand against you and destroyed you. I am weary of relenting. I have winnowed them with a winnowing fork in their gates of their land. I have bereaved them. I have destroyed my people. They did not turn from their ways. I have made their widows more in number than the sand of the seas. I have brought against the mothers of young men a destroyer at noonday. I have made anguish and terror fall upon them suddenly. She who bore seven has grown feeble. She has fainted away. The sun went down while it was yet day. She has been ashamed and disgraced. And the rest of them I will give to the sword before their enemies. Just want you to just let that sit in your heart for a little bit. This is the heart of God, right? There's judgment and it's painful for him because God is the creator of life. Just because he has the option to do with life what he chooses doesn't mean it's not incredibly, incredibly painful for him to see it come to this place with his people. It's super hard and super painful. We hear God's pain in that story. So here's the second one. We go from, from God's woe, right? Because we can't, it's hard for us to wrestle with, with God because we, we can only understand him via his character, his words, his deeds, all of those types of things. But we aren't God, so we don't, we don't get that. But we can understand where maybe Jeremiah is coming from. So we're going to shift to the second woe, which is Jeremiah, right, in this space. Because Jeremiah has at the, the core of this, this fundamental complaint with God, right? This is his woe. And he's talking, he's talking about himself here. He says, woe is me, right? Like, look at this, this self, this internal reflection here. Woe is me, my mother that you bore me, a man of strife and contention to the whole land. I have not lent, nor have I borrowed, yet all of them curse me. So let's just stop there for a second, um, because here's the deal. If you remind yourselves, of, this is how Jeremiah works, right? God is over here. He's righteous. He's holy. He's pure. He's, he's perfect, right? And then you have God's people who are in this fallen state, and these people continue to refuse to listen to God. And so God, in, in essence, brings his people into the courtroom and says, I have a lawsuit against you. Um, and yet, here's, here's the difficult part for Jeremiah. Who's God's representative? Jeremiah. So you've got all of these people, and you've got Jeremiah working on behalf of God. Like, this is terrifying if you're in Jeremiah's, Jeremiah's shoes, right? And he says, like, there's this strife and there's contention. Both these words are legal terms, as if they are actually in a courtroom. And strife is this idea of, like, this, this, this noisy clamor, right? Everybody is shouting. Everybody is angry. Everybody is talking their opinion, this, he says, this is the world that I live in. And then he says, though, there's this contention. And the contention here simply means this. He says, there's an object that all of that anger and shouting is directed at. And who is it directed at? Jeremiah. He says, there's strife, and there's an object of that contention, which is me. And he says, God, like, let's just think about this, right? Because I haven't done anything to, to deserve this. <laughs> This is not, he goes, I have not done anything to deserve this. In fact, this is your judgment with your people, and yet every single person in this camp really is aiming this at me. Anything that would normally brought Jeremiah into the courtroom, maybe something like I loaned something or borrowed something, right, and I have to come back in, and there's these legal ramifications, and what Jeremiah is saying is I have no reason to be in this courtroom. 
This is your judgment with the people, and yet every single person curses me. I am at the forefront of this anger, and it's wearing me down. Right now, it's a legitimate complaint, isn't it? It's a very legitimate uh, complaint. It's very legitimate. I want you to hear this. Just, uh, just listen to the, to the words that he says here in verse 15. These are not on slides, but just listen. Hear, hear kind of the heart. We listen to the heart of God. We listen to the heart of Yahweh. Now listen to the heart of Jeremiah here. He says, oh Lord, you know. Remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. He says, not a person in this room who hasn't done that same thing. I'm not at fault, I didn't do anything wrong. God, here's how I want you to act. I want you to punish them. But in light of that, he says, as you punish them, he says, remember, in your forbearance, take me not away. So punish them, leave me alone, right? There's not a person in this room who probably hasn't said that, right? That's true. He says, no, but God, here's what I want you to know, Yahweh, here's what I want you to know, that for your sake I bear reproach. Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I call, I'm called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. He says, when I started this journey, it was so good. You gave me words and I ate them, and it, was, it brought joy to my life, but then something changed, didn't it? Yeah, the world hates him. He says this, he says, I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone. No one by him, no one with him. I sat alone because your hand was upon me, for you had filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unceasing? My wound incurable, refusing to be healed. Will you be to me like a deceitful brook? like waters that fail. He's like, God, I am, I'm thirsty. I'm dying of thirst here. Will you be like a brook or a stream that just runs dry and you can't give me what I need you to give me? Right? So this is a painful place for Jeremiah to be in. It's very real. It's, it's, it's honest. It's accurate. And so there's a piece of us that we go, you know what? We need to acknowledge that. And we go, this is very, very appropriate in that sense. But I want to take a step back away from Jeremiah just to talk about felt needs because complaining is not something that's just rooted in some of these deep, dark moments, right? Complaining has an effect on people, right? Complaining is very fundamental to human nature. Um, so this week, uh, I was uh, at 20 Below, I was uh, driving back from 20 Below because I had some meetings and I was, uh, happened to drive through MSUM campus to get back to church and, and I knew that two of our elders who are professors there, um, and so I texted them just individually, using Siri by the way, not my hands, um, and, uh, and just said, hey, just want you guys to know I came out 20 Below, I'm passing through MSUM, I want you to know I'm praying for you right now. And uh, as I'm praying, um, Switchfoot, which is one of my favorite bands, is playing in the, in the background in my car, not just like outside randomly. Um, and so it's playing in my car, and as I start to pray, I feel the Holy Spirit just start to move in me, and it's incredible. And I just keep praying, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying, and tears start to flow from my eyes. It's so incredible, it was so powerful, and I was like, yes, and, and the song is like moving to its end, and right as the prayer ended, without me knowing, the song explodes into the chorus, and it goes, love alone is worth the fight. And so here's me, like, nah, 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 you know, driving, and just bawling as I go. And it was just incredibly powerful. I hope nobody like saw me driving through MSUM. Um, 
But I'm like driving through this moment. It's so powerful. I was like, this is so good. This is so amazing. And then I got to a stoplight, and this car slows down and turns onto the on-ramp so slow. And then the car in front of me decided to turn left from the center lane without turning the left lane. And I was like, <laughs> people don't know how to drive. <laughs> Total shift in my heart. Like, and it was like, like the Holy Spirit was like, what just happened? I'm so sorry. I'm so broken. I'm so messy. <laughs> Complaining is so, so, so easy. It's so simple and it's so easy. When the world doesn't give me what I think it owes me, I complain. I complain and I complain. And guys, here's the thing. Um, complaining does stuff to our brain, which by the way, I don't know if you know this, but research shows, which I don't know how they do this, how they define this or get this, but research shows that, the, that on average, the human complains once every minute. So chances are, if you have a conversation with somebody <laughs> in, in the foyer, maybe everyone's just going to like flee out now. <laughs> They're like, <laughs> we encourage you. They're like, hey, we're supposed to talk about mission. See ya! You know, um, you know, chances are, if you have a conversation for more than a minute, you're going to get a glimpse into the brokenness of somebody's heart and what they long for, what they're missing, what they're hurting about, right? It happens. This is the way, this is the way that we as humans work. But then I Googled, like, I just thought this would be fascinating for me, and I'll just share with you just a few things I learned. What does comp complaining actually do to the human brain? So we kind of just jump out, jump into the science world here for a second, because this is fascinating to me, is that our brains are so enamored with efficiency that when you start to create these new decisions in your life, these new action steps that you're taking, neurons are firing in your brain, and they create this neural pathway. Because instead of going all the way around, if he says, that's the decision you're going to make, I'm just going to build a bridge right there. So it's easier for me to go from A to B. So you're actually, if, the more you complain, the more you set yourself up to do it that much quicker that much quicker, right? Um, which, which, by the way, uh, this is fascinating too, is that the more you complain, uh, the more it actually shrinks the hippocampus in your brain. It actually damages your brain. It shrinks it. The hippocampus is the, is the area in your brain that is, that is focused on critical thinking and problem solving. Do you feel like we need that right now? <laughs> I think we need more critical problem solving than we do to complaining, right? And yet one is doing the opposite, right? And it's fighting against us. At the same time, here's what it's also doing. As you complain, it releases this hormone called cortisol. And what it does is that it pushes us into a fight or flight mentality. And so you start to complain and you find yourself and then someone else hears that and they challenge you. You have two options. In fear or you respond angrily and you fight or in fear you flee. Right? And you see how that sets us up for, for disunity. And yet this is how the brain works. And they actually say that complaining can be like secondhand smoke. When you're around people who are doing that, your body can physiologically adapt to the same thing. And your brain can rewire itself in the same way. You go, wow, it's fascinating. I had no idea right? And so when we think about these things, uh, guys, we, it, this is fundamental to, to human conversation, right? Complaining is, and sometimes in life, it's, that's super intentional, and sometimes it's very unintentional. We don't even realize that we're doing it. And we want to make sure as we step back, we go, what Jeremiah is talking about here is, is absolutely appropriate. He has this conversation with God. God wants to hear those things. But I want us to see the dark side of complaining, because this is a felt need, and it happens in so many different ways throughout the day, especially if it happens once a minute. 
see the effects, see the dark side of this, right? And so here's what I want you to see. There's these, he says that even with those prophets at the very beginning, those lying prophets, how quickly and easy it is for us to shift into a false narrative when we start to complain. Because our complaining is rooted in a perception of reality that I want to be true, but that isn't. And I create this dogmatic stance. This is who God is. This is what he needs to do in my life. And here's, the, here's this, this kind of this bigger piece is that, guys, sometimes when our perception of reality is rooted in a really deep lie, it can take us to some really dark places. And I want to read from Jeremiah chapter 20, and this is very painful, so I'm sorry if this is hard for you, but at the same time, this is where Jeremiah is coming from. Jeremiah chapter 20, uh, verse 14, uh, here's what he says, he says, cursed be the day on which I was born. Just pause for a second, because if you remember, way back earlier, right, just in our chapter, in chapter 15, what does he say? He says, woe is me, right? And then he comes on later, and he says, I am at the center of, of this conflict between God and God's people, and every single person curses me. And it gets to the point in Jeremiah's life where he says, I am fed up with this. So I'm going to take all of those emotional feelings about how I feel about being put into this situation, and I'm going to put all of that onto the day that I was born. That's how done Jeremiah is. Cursed be the day on which I was born. The day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, a son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. Why did I come out of the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? That's a painful, painful piece. That's a painful spot to be. That's a dark, dark place. And Jeremiah, though he's right to feel the way that he does, needs to change his attitude, and God will address that in a little bit. But this is a painful place. Here's what I want you to know. Guys, if, if someone in your life is going through that type of pain, please don't try to use your words to fix it. Don't be like Job's friends who enter in and just spew what they think is all the right things. People in this dark of a place just need to be sat by and loved, cared for deeply. And this is the place that Jeremiah is in, this dark, dark place, okay? That's the second woe. And I want to lead us to the third and the final woe, okay? Uh, in order to do that, we need to jump back into uh, chapter 13, okay? Now, if you remember, um, there's a story uh, of the belt, uh, the belt uh, that God called Jeremiah. And I asked Kent if I could do this because I think this sets us up really well for communion, okay? And I'm going to give you three observations about this belt uh, from chapter 13. The first thing um, 
And I just grabbed a tie um, because I feel like, it, well, A, purple was a very hard-to-come-by color in their time, in the Old Testament times, even in the New Testament time. It was very rare uh, and very pricey. Uh, and also because it's got that weird texture. And here's why I say this, because the first observation about this belt that God had Jeremiah get is that it's made of linen. Uh, linen is not a normal clothing option. Okay, uh, we don't understand that because we live in a world where everybody basically has access to the same things. We all go to the same stores, we buy all the same things, right? And then we go, oh, you have that shirt, I'm gonna go change, right? And so we do this, right? But with Jeremiah, they didn't have that option. And so linen was special and important because of its material. It was so rare and the color so rare that it was given only to the priests. Only priests wore linen. Right? And so what, what God is doing is that he has him go buy this thing. He says, what he's, he's, he's referring to the holiness and the majesty of this, of this garment in the way that it's designed to show off the dedicated, devoted commitment of one person to God. He says, this is only for priests, but I want you to get it. Remember, Jeremiah was born into a priestly family, but God called him to be a prophet. And so here's what God does. He says, I want you to go buy it, and then I want you to put it on. And this is weird, right, because Jeremiah, as a prophet, his normal clothing would be like a camel hair tunic. That's it. And so imagine Jeremiah in camel hair tunic putting on a priestly linen belt and wearing it around town. Do you think you're going to get conversations? Why are you wearing that? How did you get it? You know, like, this is bizarre. You're the doom and judgment guy. What do you do? Like, what? Like, now you think you're all cool and hip because you wear a cool belt? Like, like think about all the different just conversations that you had with these people, right? This is what God says. I want you to put it on. The second thing, um, the observation is about this, is he says that this is meant, and when you put it around the waist as this belt, he says it's a symbol. And it's a symbol for this, that, that we would cling to God. And so we, as the people, represent in, represented in this belt in the way that we wrap ourselves around God and that we exist to glorify God, to show the majesty of God, right, in our lives. So everywhere I go, when people look at Seth, what should they see? They should see God. That's the way that it's designed. It's mind, designed to cling to God, right? And if you go back to Genesis 2-4, you'll find, actually, there's this moment in, um, when we, we use as like a source text for how we talk about marriage. There's this man and woman, and God says, for this reason, a man shall leave, and he shall cleave. He shall leave his, his father and mother, and he shall cleave. It's the same word. It's the idea of cling. And so the imagery that's being carried is God saying that me and my people are meant to be in this devoted pure, committed, undefiled relationship. And that God, in some sense, wears us as his belt in this pure, holy, righteous way. And this isn't holy in and of them by itself. It's holy because of who it's attached to. And this is the way that we're designed. In fact, in chapter 13, he says, there's these four things that, that God says, I want this for me. I designed you for me. If you go back, you can circle those words, underline them, whatever, for me. It says, for me, I want you to be a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. He says, your entire sum of existence is about bringing glory to me like this belt. 
And as the story goes, God told Jeremiah, he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that belt and I want you to take it to the river Euphrates and I want you to bury it. Which, by the way, the river Euphrates uh, is about a three-month journey. So God says, take the belt, and I want you to go there. So Jeremiah, he leaves. He's had all these conversations. I'm sure there's the guy with the belt, the guy doom and judgment. He's by himself. Up oh, there he goes. Goes and buries it. He comes back. He spent some time, and everybody's like, man, where's your belt? Where's your cool belt, man? Huh? Where's your, cool, where's your doom and judgment? Where's your cool belt? All the ridicule that he would get, and God's like, hey, I want you to go back. And so by the time he goes back, it's been at least six months that this linen, this pure, holy, majestic, beautiful thing that symbolizes us and our relationship with God has been sitting in the dirt, and he says, dig it up, and he digs it up, and he pulls it out, and what we find is that it's spoiled is that it's deteriorating, it's rotten. In fact, the Hebrew word for spoiled means this, there's nothing good in all of it. Nothing good in all of it. He says, you were designed to be a people, a praise, a name, and a glory. This is what you were meant to be, wrapped around my waist, showing me off in creation. This is who God is. And yet, as you pull it out, he says, there's nothing good left in all of it. powerful image when you think about what this represents. And here's the question that ends this part in chapter 13. In verse 27, he says this. This is the woe, right? This is the woe to Jerusalem. It's the woe to us. How long will it be before you are made clean? How long? God asked that question. It's rhetorical, he knows. Because what's so important about this is that it's pointing us directly to the cross. And it's pointing us directly to Jesus. You see, in Jeremiah, we've been talking a ton about wrath and judgment and sin and idolatry, right? And so God has got this this lawsuit against his people. And at the center of that relationship is Jeremiah as his representative. And Jeremiah is just getting curse after curse after curse after curse. Jeremiah, as a mere human, is not able to sustain or do what the people need. He's like, man, this isn't even my thing. This is God's thing. And yet you shift to the New Testament and we find that Jeremiah just gets swapped out with a guy named Jesus who becomes the center of that conflict between God and people. And there's a split second, there's this moment in time and space when Jesus, who had existed, has existed for all time in loving eternity and unity with the Father for a moment as he hung on the cross, looks to the Father and says, why have you forsaken me? It's a very similar plight from Jeremiah, but it's from Jesus, the Son of God. And in that moment, there's this, this blip when God has to turn his back on his son so that his son can bear all of the weight of the wrath, the judgment, the sin, the idolatry, all of the people's choices who would say, we will not listen. And God turns his back so that Jesus can take it. And we begin to see the great exchange, as we hand something to God that's spoiled, there's nothing good in all of it, and what he hands you back is a perfect, brand new robe because of Jesus, what he accomplished. 
It's a crazy, so cool that God can take everything in your life that's soiled, that's spoiled, that's shattered, that's stained, that's shameful, and Jesus can make them right. And here, but here's how this, this story ends in Jeremiah 15. Because remember, Jeremiah has got this complaint before God, and God says, listen, Jeremiah, I hear you, I understand you, but guess what? You're in the wrong, and you need to change your attitude. You need to repent. Here's what he says in verse 19. It says, therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return. He's not talking to the people anymore. He's talking to Jeremiah because of his attitude. If you return, I will restore you, and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them, and I will make you to this people a fortified wall, a bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you, for I am with you to, excuse me, to save you and deliver you. You see, there's this repentance that God calls Jeremiah to, and he does the same with us. It's for each of us as individuals. But I want to hear you. I want you to hear this. It's also, it's not just about us. It's also for the world. In 2 Peter 3.9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, it's a, it's a wish and a desire for me, and it's a wish and a desire, God's wish and desire for the world. We're heading into um, 40 days of prayer, which we do each year, and one of the things that we like to do is we like to intentionally pray over people, which, by the way, we've been praying through this series over different groups of people every Sunday. Uh, we want our, our community to be praying along with us for different groups of people as we seek the welfare of our city and world, but if you'd like to go into more in-depth, you can actually download this uh, at the app store. It's just, it's like $1.99 or something, and it has a whole bunch of great things for you to be praying through and praying over as we enter into 40 days of prayer. But from our angle, here's what we're asking you this week as we lead towards Easter. On your table, there's a card that says, For the City. On the back of that card has three slots, and what we would ask you to do is to grab one of those cards and to, in your time, doesn't need to be today or right now, but in your time as you talk to the Lord, ask him, who are the three people that I need to be praying for this, this season who don't have a relationship with Jesus? Write those names in, take that home with you, and put it where you can constantly be praying. I want to invite the worship team to come up, and we'll close um, and in communion. And um, <clears throat> I want to give you these, these couple of questions. First one is this, what are the lies that I'm believing uh, today, and maybe that's a gospel thing, just, gosh, I feel so soiled and spoiled, I'm, I, there's nothing good left in me, uh, and you just, you can't see yourself in the way that God wants to see you, but whatever lie that is, know that there's lies in our lives that we believe that change our reality, which leads us to a place of complaining, and so just ask yourself this, where do I need to change my attitude, and the best way to do that, which we'll do today at our tables through communion, is to cultivate gratitude. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, as we, as we wrap up this morning, as we turn to a song and communion, and as we, as we think about the bread 
that is the body, as we think about the, the juice that represents the blood. Lord, I, I pray that we would humbly find ourselves this morning at the foot of the cross and that we would be reminded about the greatness, the goodness of who Jesus was, what he came to accomplish, what he did on our behalf, that he would take us to have this, who have this linen belt that is soiled. It is good for nothing. There's nothing good in all of it. And he says that I'm happy to exchange for you, to give you the forgiveness of sins by grace through faith if you would just take it. But that in that, there's a call to discipleship. There's a call to follow Jesus, to be transformed, to be remade into the likeness of Christ in a broken world. And so wherever we're at this morning, if we've never met Jesus, if we need to rethink where we're at in our walk with Jesus right now, I want to pray that you would call us to your throne, that you would call us to the cross in all humility. Would you remind us who we are? In your name we pray. Amen.